Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in for the Savvy Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Jonathan Ip. He is the founder of Iterative Law, a business law firm focused on delivering practical business-first legal services to entrepreneurs, startups, growth-oriented companies, and everyone who has their own entrepreneurship journey. Jonathan has over a decade of experience in Canadian, U.S., and international securities offerings, mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, corporate governance, and corporate and commercial matters. His career spans both private practice and in-house counsel roles and has advised businesses at all stages of their development. He also worked in a variety of industries, including technology, blockchain, AI, mining, and real estate. He is definitely going to tell us more about his career. And with that, please welcome. Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Maria. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and sharing uh, some tips and advice. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing well, enjoying the heat wave here in Toronto. I assume it's also hot and sunny where you are? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm just north of the city and uh, really enjoying the, you know, the turning of the weather and the fact that we can actually go outside a little bit more and start enjoying life again. I guess it kind of feels like post-pandemic times. I mean, you kind of know something is going to happen, but at least it's sunny and nice. So you can forget exactly. about it. <laughs> exactly. You know, just not being cooped up in the house anymore and, and you know, not being able to see your family. Any, you know, like you're, you're finally able to actually start interacting with people in person again, you know, more than just six feet apart. It's, it's nice to have that, right? It's a nice gradual uh, step up to hopefully the beginning of more normal activity. Amen to that. And restaurants are opening up inside and things seem to be okay. You just have to wear a mask everywhere you go. But you know what? I'll take that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely willing to take that. I know. Well, glad you're doing well. Now, I guess to start off with, for all the listeners who don't know a lot about your company or what you do, do you mind giving us a little bit of background story of where you're from in your experience and things you've done before? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a lawyer by training. My career has spanned over a decade, and I've done a lot of transactional as well as commercial work. So what that translates into is um, working with um, businesses in a variety of industries on things like uh, raising money, uh, buying and selling parts or, or all of their business, um, helping them go public. So you know, getting listed onto the onto major exchanges, and then helping um, them also uh, get taken out and go private as well. So a lot of that work I've done in my life as a private uh, firm lawyer. So working with uh, two of the largest uh, law firms in Canada. So Davies, Ward, Phelps, and Weinberg, which is known as the top business firm in Canada, working on sort of bet the farm type transactions where you need you know the best of the best. And I also worked at Bennett Jones, which is a very large, one of the largest uh, Canadian law firms as well, uh, which focuses more on the energy side. But um, I worked a lot with the technology group and uh, worked with a lot of um, startups and entrepreneurs there, as well as scale-ups, and finally, again, going public, uh, being bought out, and then moving on and, and going on to the next deal. I like it. So then I guess the question would be, who are your favorite clients? Do you like working with large companies or more startup entrepreneurs? Who would be your preferred? Well, the, that's the reason why I actually started my own firm uh, rather than go continue to work with a, a large firm. My experiences in the in the firms really gave me a, a good sense of 
the variety of clients and, and businesses out there. But I've also worked in-house in, uh, you know, sort of on the business side. And that's where I got more, more, I would say, practical approach to really practicing law, which is looking at being a lawyer as a service provider and advisor, but helping the business move forward ultimately. You know, really trying to understand what it is a business is trying to do and helping them, you know, make those incremental gains so they can become successful. The reason why I started my firm uh, is because I identified what I thought was a gap between getting that kind of professional business-oriented advice at an earlier stage of, of the development of a business without having to pay huge uh, traditional law firm rates and being kind of stuck in that traditional law firm model of being charged hourly, cash only, doing the work only as directed by your client and not thinking ahead and being aligned long-term with the success of the client's business. So with that, I guess you would see a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startup founders who really have a great idea, know what they're doing in their space, but might not necessarily know a either how to structure the business or what are the proper tools they need to have in their toolkit to move forward, how to grow the company. Is that something that you see very often? Is that something you help the entrepreneurs navigate? Yeah, I, I do see that quite often. And I think it's one of those things that entrepreneurs, when they're first doing this, don't necessarily think about, and for good reason, right? They're super excited about the idea about the, um, that they're, they're building on, you know, putting that team together to build out the vision that they see. When they're focused on that, and they should be focused on that because that's what they're good at, they don't necessarily think about some of the other implications. You know, legal becomes almost a secondary thing for a lot of um, entrepreneurs. Same with maybe the financial side of things. Although, you know, entrepreneurs, I think, like to think that, hey, I can do everything on a shoestring budget. And for a large extent, um, I think, you know, early on, some a lot of what they want to do, they, they can if they spend the time to, to kind of understand and, and think through it. It gets a bit complicated when it comes to even the, the at the beginning stages of, hey, I've got a co-founder and I want to start a business. Do I need to do anything? And the answer is, yeah, you probably should at least talk to somebody and understand what your options are in terms of setting up your business and you know what you want to do with your co-founder and think through some of the issues that when you're excited about starting something you don't want to think about, but it's almost like insurance, right? Like it's, it's, it's one of those things where you should talk about it up front and if things go well, you never have to worry about it again. So I guess on that note, if you have a co-founder, if you're looking to start a co-founding team, what would be the right steps to take? Does it depend on how many people are involved or how would you structure the agreement? A lot of the um, entrepreneurs and startups I deal with, usually it's a team of people, at least two or three. And it, it makes sense because you know when you're kind of working on your own, you have to basically do everything and know everything when you're starting. And, and that's a very difficult position to be in. When you've got a, a couple other team members working with you, you can divvy up tasks, you can you know, focus on your expertise. So say if you're more of a, on the development side of a, for a tech startup, then you can focus on development. If someone else is better at, say, the marketing side, then they can kind of focus on, on building the market, the customer brand. With more than one person, though, you start to have some of those questions and conversations that you should have probably up front about you know, what ownership is going to look like. How do you want to reflect that in the legal structure? So do you want a corporation? Do you want to really work together as a partnership first? And what has someone wants to leave? I mean, that's always the first question. I think it's the hardest thing, too, that people don't want to address, which is, I've got this great team of people. Why would they ever want to leave? Well, you know, life happens. And if a co-founder wants to leave, have you dealt with that upfront with the right legal documentation? 
or the right legal structure. And, you know, talking to somebody who can help you at least think about these issues and come, go through some of the traditional sort of normal scenarios that other companies have gone through in the past, just so you can anticipate it. It just helps you address those circumstances if they ever happen. Interesting. So I guess going forward, if you have to create an agreement with your co-founders when you're starting to work on a startup, is there some clauses or things you would recommend to absolutely include and mention to make sure that, you know, going forward, there won't be a lot of issues? There's a few things to sort of think through first. And the first thing is, is if you have co-founders, and even if you don't, you know, what, what's your business structure? So if you don't set up anything, you set up a corporation, and then you're you know, and you're on your own, it's going to be a sole proprietorship, which is fine. The thing that, and if you don't have a corporation, even with a bunch of people together, it's really a partnership. That's okay as well, as long as you understand that what this means is that you're not reducing your liability. So what that means is that you start this business, and if anything happens to that business, it's not just the business assets, the, the money and the property you've kind of put into the business that is potentially out there for creditors and people with complaints. It's everything that you own. So my first instinct and my first suggestion would be you should think about you know incorporating your business if it makes sense because creating a corporation uh, really is primarily to limit your liability if the corporation's running the business and anyone has any complaints they can only really sue the corporation itself generally speaking and so you're limiting your own personal assets from being a target as well so that's the first thing but also having a corporation helps with multiple team members because now you can actually divvy up ownership so you issue shares to your other team members you can decide who owns what percentage of the company based on your sort of perceived contributions um so that's a, that's once one other good thing about doing that and then you also should probably think about so this business is just starting right now. There's a couple of scenarios, right? Which is, this is going to be wildly successful. Everyone's going to stay on and our ownership um, in the company, which is going to grow in value, is going to grow as well. That's wonderful. So what happens if someone wants to leave, you know, for personal reasons or for, um, you know, perhaps other unfortunate reasons like a death or, you know, bankruptcy or other situations like that? So you want to address those situations up front and sort of build in, in the case of a corporation, what's known as a shareholders agreement. So the owners of the corporation, all the shareholders will put an agreement together that kind of deals with these situations. If someone decides to leave the company, maybe the corporation or the other shareholders have the right to buy back the shares from them and maintain ownership with the remaining founders. That's an example of things to consider. Thank you for sharing those. I think those are vital. Now, in terms of the protection of the idea or the company when you're creating something. Do you think it's valuable to try to create, you know, to apply for a patent or to trademark whatever you've got or in this day and age with the technology industry, it doesn't really matter upfront in the beginning? That actually is a great question. And again, one of the other reasons why having a corporation can be very useful if you're creating intellectual property amongst more than one person, um, the default tends to be joint ownership in the IP. And so that sounds fine on paper. Okay, so I, I have equal rights to you know this great product with my co-founders. What's the big deal? An issue comes with when you have joint ownership, depending on the jurisdiction too, depending on the countries and the laws, there's there may be potential issues on whether you can sell the IP, you can license it. Do you have to get everyone to agree or... Can one person effectively kind of block any any um, ability to monetize the, the intellectual property? A lot of people will do when they're uh, starting up a you know 
particularly like a, a tech heavy type business is to set up a corporation and ensure that all the founders have signed agreements that say any intellectual property that they created um, are, are creating for the business is actually um, vested in the corporation. So the corporation owns all the intellectual property. And, you know, looking further ahead, potential uh, outside investors in the future, when you're looking to say raise money for your business, will also want to have that comfort that the IP actually is held by your business, your corporation, and not by an individual. Early on, you know, depending on the the IP you're producing, you know, is it patentable is, is always a good question. Patents are great protective measures if you think it's worth the effort and the money to go and, and do it. But I think early on, if you're just starting, it's a bit difficult to you know, spend the money to do that. I think when you sort of get closer to having something that you think is patentable, then it's worth talking to a patent agent or um, I would say probably a, an intellectual property lawyer that can help you kind of go through that particular process. And what's great is that they also can give you advice on where you should start, you know, your patent applications, you know, what jurisdiction, is there an ability to say start in the US and then bring it into Canada and then into the EU, just finding the right kind of strategy, the IP strategy on that as well. Interesting. So then you mentioned that, you know, co-founders create an agreement and everybody has to make sure that, you know, all of the IP intellectual property is vested in the corporation. Now, Mm -hmm. how do you protect, I guess, in the co-founding team? You know how those Facebook stories um, where, you know, a team started with two three people and then they had conflicting views about where the company is going and then started another corporation that is similar and they're competing now with each other or you know the founders were best friends but then fell apart and it's now no longer the same type of relationship is there a way for founders to create an agreement where i guess the breakup if it has to happen can be easy and smooth or there's just no such thing I would typically have that baked into the the shareholders agreement as well. So the good thing about the shareholders agreement is that it really addresses not only the day-to-day management and functions and how you run the business, but those types of scenarios where people are leaving either on good terms or bad terms or unfortunate, you know, events happen to them. So in the case of, um, you know, like you said, a, a founder fallout and one person wants to leave, most shareholders agreements, you would want a confidentiality protection for sure. So anything that happens, you know, in the business, you can't take the confidential information, go use it for any other purpose. You often see, you know, non-competition and non-solicitation provisions as well. So if you leave the company and you sell your shares back to the company, then you still have non-compete or a non-solicit for say one or two years. You can't go and directly try to compete against the business you just left. And you can't go around trying to solicit employees to leave the business or try to, you know, steal customers and directly compete against the business. So these are kinds of protections you would um, typically see in, in the shareholders. Interesting. So then I guess that brings this whole conversation into the next step of, you know, the raising money aspect. So when the company is trying to get money from either outside investors or shareholder injections, safe agreements, finding partners, uh, trying to figure out the valuation. Have you dealt with any interesting cases in that matter? And then I guess what would be your recommendation on that topic? Uh, capital raises is always an ongoing, I think, project for a lot of startups. And it's because you bootstrap to the extent that you can to build a product, try to build some traction. But 
you're, you're likely going to need external money in some form to then uh, really scale your business and go forward. I'd say the first thing on that is if and when you need to start raising the money, just make sure you're, you're well prepared. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you need to have a good understanding of not only your business, but the plans in which you are going to use to grow the business. And they, they need to be fairly realistic. Most investors that you go to or professional investors are going to be scrutinizing, you know, any financials you have, your your burn rates, how much money are you spending, your projections on growth and revenue generation, and you know, to kind of decide if that's realistic or not. Looking at um, you know your your target um, market, and you know, is it realistic in terms of what you think the you know uh, proposed market for your product is? So those are you know less legal, but more sort of preparing yourself for that pitch, that story for the potential investor. So once you get the investor really interested, that's where the I think the legal part come, kind of starts to come in a bit as well, which is they're now going to want to do due diligence on you. So what that means is they're, they're going to want to kick the tires, understand your business. You know, the analogy I like to use is if you go and buy a car, you're not just going to, you know, go into the dealership, say, I like that car, it looks pretty, pay the money and then drive off with it. What do you do? You go do test drives. You go compare it with other cars. You ask a lot of questions, you know, to the uh, the dealer about the car and the reliability. You know, if you're particularly interested, you might want to get a, a mechanic or somebody to actually look under the hood and kind of poke around if it's say a used car. So that's really the due diligence process, and that's what potential investors really like to do and really want to understand: is your business well constructed? Are there gaps? Are there concerns around? Um, the business, because if they're giving you money, it means that they're trusting that you actually know what to do with the money, that you're actually going to execute on your plan. So some of the things that I do with my clients is to help them prepare themselves for that. So it can be very small things like, hey, so you incorporated. Did you actually do all the proper documentation to issue the shares to all your shareholders, to all your founders? Did you enter into that shareholders agreement that um, deals with you know potential issues if um, you know a founder decides to leave? Did you make sure that all the IP was um, actually assigned and transferred to the corporation? What kind of employment agreements do you have with your employees, if any? Do you have consulting agreements with everyone who's actually working for you that's not an employee? Do you have an option plan? And if you do, do you have you documented everything? So those types of things, those types of documents will end up in, as part of the due diligence because the investors are going to want to really understand that you have your paperwork done properly and that there shouldn't be any concerns around you know, the operations, the documentation on your business and the ownership of the technology and the intellectual property. So that is important, obviously, for you know, a shareholder who's trying to invest in the business. But usually they say that, well, in finance, there's this idea that there's a lot of money out there, but there's not a lot of great ideas. So for the entrepreneurs who are looking for capital, are there any tips or any advice that they should follow to get the right money into the doors to make sure that they don't dilute inappropriately, to make sure that they retain as much of the company as possible for as long as possible? Are there any tips or lessons there? Yeah, it's always going to be a negotiation at the end of the day between the company and then the potential investors out there. So I think one of the first things you'll, you'll want to do is to make sure that the investors you're targeting, if they're professional investors, for example, you know, you can very easily look up 
what their portfolio, other portfolio companies are, so what they invest in, and what their interests are, and try to align yourself with the right investors. Because, for example, a investor that focuses purely on mining is not likely to have the expertise to understand, you know, your AI startup, for example. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to even approach them because they're not going to learn an entire new industry just to give you money. Target the right investors and try to, you know, learn from every approach that you go to, right, and every um, you know meeting you have with them. Because what's interesting is, is that as you meet more and more investors that are interested in you know, really digging deeper in your company, you'll find that they're going to ask a lot of the same questions and then some of them are have novel questions. If you don't have the answers to those questions, then that's where it gets a bit concerning for them. But if you have that dealt with and you've got the answers to you know, sort of the common questions and you're able to thoughtfully answer some of the more perhaps exotic questions as well, that gives them the comfort that you actually know what you're doing. In terms of sort of protecting your ownership and the dilution aspect, if you have enough investors who are very interested, so you kind of end up in a, in a scenario where um, hopefully you've got a number of investors who are interested, they're going to approach you and say, hey, I'm willing to invest this amount of money for this percentage of your company on these terms. And if you have multiple investors who are saying that, you can kind of pick and choose and perhaps negotiate you know, how much dilution. So are you giving up 10% or are you giving up 20% of the company? What's their proposed valuation for the business? You know, 5 million versus 10 million, for example. You can kind of determine which of these investors do you want to move forward with. You know, some of the things you want to think about on that is how much of the company am I giving up on this particular round? And as much as it's important to focus on the current round of investment, it's also important to think ahead as well. So most investment rounds, I'd say you probably want call it 12 to 18 months of runway. So enough money to get you to that next milestone, you know, between a a year to a year and a half to kind of get there. And then chances are you'll probably need to do another round. So you got to think ahead about, well, what happens in that round then? Because hopefully the valuation of the business has grown, which means that I can raise more money on a higher valuation, perhaps less dilution. But, you know, typically every round you're probably looking at on average somewhere between 15 to 20% dilution each time. So you got to think about that and, and just keep it in mind. I like it. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting us know what to do. Now, are there any common mistakes that you have noticed that all of the entrepreneurs are making basically constantly over and over again and how to avoid them? There's a few things. The first is, unfortunately, it's a, it's a little difficult, but partnering with the wrong person. So uh, as a co-founder or, or the, the wrong co-founders, and it's often hard to know that until you actually start working with somebody. So it could be a variety of reasons. One is, um, you know, uh, you might have a good friendship with somebody that you want to work with, but then it turns out when it comes to the working relationship, your work style is different from theirs and they may not work out that way. I think another common issue or mistake that co-founders sometimes uh, will go through is basically co-founding a business with someone else or a group of other people with the exact same skill set. So you're now not covering up. So for example, you know, if you've got three people and they're all software developers. Well, maybe you can develop a really great product that way, but how do you bulk up on, say, the business development side of things? How do you deal with the accounting? How do you deal with the legal? And the answer really is you'd have to go out to external sources for that. To the extent you can work with people with different skill sets to cover those other aspects, then that can be very helpful and be a, a way to be successful without having to worry about spending excessively on external fees. Now, speaking about external fees, is it better to have an in-house lawyer? I guess when you're starting out, it's probably not an option. But what would be your suggested uh, formula, so to speak, for legal representation? 
Yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's for an early startup, it's not really realistic to have a full time in house lawyer. And, and frankly, I think when you're just starting up, you probably don't need full time legal services、um, at that kind of scale. So, depending on your initial budget, I think that, and depending on what you're looking for, there are actually are some pretty decent online, you know, sort of free services to kind of get yourself up to speed on understanding some of the legal concepts. So, Uh, you know, for example, if you look at、um, you know the, the government of Canada or, or you know the Ontario government websites, there are some helpful documents and basic information about the differences between like a corporation, a partnership, and how you could set it up yourself. There's some great resources for actually in, incorporating on your own. So the federal government actually just recently updated their website. You can actually go and file your own incorporation documents. You can set up your own company in about ten minutes if you. Knew what you were doing. Even if you didn't quite understand, there's a lot of helpful guidance on just incorporation, for example. So those sorts of things, and and I, I've told clients this.、Um, you know, you could do it yourself if you wanted to, and not incur the extra legal fees if、um, if you were confident enough to do it. Other sort of sources that you could go to on a shoestring budget. You know, law schools, business schools sometimes have、um, they often have business clinics,、um, legal business clinics, or. Or hours that you can kind of go to and hopefully get some free advice or general, you know, advice on how to move forward. You could also maybe do some online law courses, like Coursera and、uh, Udemy have good sort of broad courses that can just give you an understanding of the legal landscape. And a lot of the firms also have,、uh, you know, what they kind of call the startup packages. So for you know a fixed fee, they'll incorporate you, put together a shareholders agreement, and might help you with、uh, one or two other things for for a fixed fee. I have mixed feelings about those particular packages, only because a lot of the clients I've spoken to who have gone through those, it's great initially, but you know that the firms are providing it as essentially a loss leader because they want to, you know, start working with these early stage companies now, and hopefully as they grow into bigger companies, they can be involved in sort of larger,、um, you know, more sophisticated and more、uh, lucrative transactions. Well, the the problem is is that for that fixed fee. As a startup, you're going to get most likely a fairly junior lawyer taking documents that have been prepared, you know, as forms, and not necessarily getting that kind of more seasoned advice of, or or discussion about, hey, are these documents really, you know, the way they are? Does this work for your particular business situation, or you know, it, do you really want to sign them as is because it may not work for, you know, what you're doing today? Depending on your situation, not a bad place to start, but I think. Ultimately, working with a lawyer who has gone through the ropes really understands you know the life cycle of a business and is willing to move away from the traditional you know hourly rate model. Really wants to align themselves with you for your long term growth is probably the best way to try to find you know long term kind of legal advice and someone to help you with your business as you scale and continue to grow the business. And it's probably going to be cheaper in the long run if you have, you know, one person or a company that you go to, even for you know small matters. Doesn't have to be a consistent hourly bill, but even something that comes up every now and then, you can always call them. Versus, you know, trying out seventeen different people as you grow, and then always every time have to explain your business, your strategy, where you're going. I think it's good to build a relationship from the start. Absolutely, nothing wrong to work with、uh, with law firms either versus you know sort of、uh, more、um, you know individual lawyers or smaller firms. I, I think every firm they all have a particular role and, and need 
to which they can service. So like I said, when I worked at the bigger firms, it was the larger, more complicated transactions where you needed the resources of a law firm. So you needed, say, really sophisticated um, tax advice, as well as employment advice, as well as competition advice. Going to a law firm that has all those resources that they can pull together to help you with that particular deal, absolutely. And I would absolutely you know, tell my clients who wanted to do complicated deals like that, you know, let me get on the phone and call my friends at my old firms and you know, get you talking to them about it. So I think there's always a, a time and a place for the level of service is really what you're looking for. Do you need that kind of level of service and resources for, say, doing your website terms of service or your kind of standard you know, services agreement that you want to use for your clients or even getting someone to prepare like a form of purchase order if you're going to use something like that? Well, probably not. You know, you can, you can work with someone else who can customize those things on an in- individual basis and you know, help you kind of move forward that way instead of having to pay the higher fees of a law firm to do the exact same thing. Is there a rule of thumb to a certain point when you grow that you should switch from maybe a single person or a small firm representation to maybe some larger shops? And like, what would be that rule of thumb? Like, is there guidance that you can provide? It depends because so working with someone earlier stage, you know, with a say an individual lawyer or a smaller firm for the day to day stuff, and then maybe going to one of the larger firms for I like to call kind of the larger um, transformative transactions, perhaps. So look, if you're just doing an early raise for your firm or your business, so you know a seed round type raise or a Series A, you could probably do it with even just an individual lawyer if you're just raising money from a half dozen to a dozen people. You know, someone who understands. Um, securities laws and capital raising, all that, absolutely. But if you're starting to go to, say, using an investment banker to go and raise you know, a lot more money from multiple sources, then chances are you do actually want a law firm to help with that. Not only because there could be more demands in terms of you know, the due diligence that an investment banker might do on you before they're willing to you know, go out to their books and raise the money from their clients and their accounts, but also because the actual process can be a bit more complicated, so you need more resources to deal with it. But also, the investment banker may just insist on having a firm with those additional resources to help you on those particular deals. And I think it's appropriate for that. Maybe a large M&A transaction, uh, you know, where you're perhaps selling your business to a, a very, you know, a private equity firm or a strategic, um, you know, company that wants to acquire your entire business. If it's complex and your business has grown to the point where there's a lot of due diligence that the buyer wants to do on you, again, it could be appropriate use of uh, a larger firm's resources to help you kind of manage that. Because one of the considerations, I think, um, that businesses don't necessarily think about when they're doing these types of transactions or when they're thinking about it is that it's not just, hey, I'm going to throw this off to my lawyer and my accountant and they'll do it for me. The internal resources of the business are going to be taken to actually get that deal done. So when you're doing, a, say, a capital raise in an investment round, it's not like your lawyer is going to just run that for you. You're going to want to be involved with someone if you're not going to be the one in charge of it. Someone in your business or multiple people in your business will be involved in you know, the due diligence side, negotiating the terms, and actually getting the money funded ultimately. And that takes resources away from the day-to-day operations. So I guess you mentioned a really good point that, you know, you obviously want to participate in a lot of negotiations and a lot of steps that your company is going through. And that's, you know, the whole idea of the unknown unknowns, basically, and not knowing some of the things, some of the nuances, maybe about your industry, maybe about 
the legal profession. Are there any maybe guidelines for people to follow? Maybe you're supposed to get your legal advisor's work checked by someone else. Like, is there some resources that people can use to verify whether their legal advisor covered everything? Because they might not also know. And then, you know, six months later, they realize that something else should have been included or something else should have been added that wasn't added before because I guess the legal counsel just didn't know. Is there a way for you to check the legal professional's work or you got to just trust them? Ultimately, it's, it's very much a, a trust-based relationship. I mean, if you're going to check someone else's work, uh, you basically need to hire another lawyer, and I don't think you want to be doing that. I think the best way to handle that upfront is uh, to make sure that whoever you're using, well, first, you know, look them up, right? The, the, the great thing about the, you know, our generation is, is that all the information is online. So you can look at what deals they've done, what their expertise is, what other people say about them. Look on LinkedIn, see where they're connected to that you're connected to and ask about them, right? Do your due diligence on, on your service providers, your lawyers, your accountants, whoever it is, just to know who they are and get some feedback, you know, get some honest feedback about whether they say truly understand your, your industry, they've actually done the work that they, they say they've done, um, you know, how involved they might have been in those deals. So a junior lawyer on a transaction depending on the firm and depending on the size of deal, uh, may only have a small piece of that deal. It may not have been the person at the very front of the negotiations and actually handling those types of transactions. So just having that kind of context can be very helpful. You know, when it comes to checking and, you know, trying to cover yourself on, hey, did the lawyer do everything they're supposed to do? That also comes down to the experience level of the lawyer and how long they've been working in you know, that particular type of work and have they done those types of deals over and over again? And I understand this, right? Like you want to be very careful about spending money on lawyers and other service providers, but going for the cheapest lawyer typically means you're getting someone who's a bit more junior and may not have gone through enough transactions, enough deals to be able to say, hey, I remember working on something like that and we had to deal with X, Y, and Z. So have you guys thought about this? You know, it's that kind of experience to be able to kind of ask you these questions and to, you know, bring up these potential, you know, pitfalls. That, that's what really ultimately what you're, you're trying to pay for. That really makes sense. I mean, you always get what you pay for. So if you decide to save some money, sometimes not the best idea. Now, in terms of the current industries uh, that are booming, obviously it's e-commerce and uh, every business is going digital. Basically, every brick and mortar concept is now having a digital presence and trying to do sales online. And obviously, COVID really sped up this process. The tech sector is killing it, but also it brings a lot of other issues into the market. The data privacy, all of the issues with information retention, and making sure that all of your user agreements, customer agreements, as you said, purchase orders have to be correct. Now, usually, I mean, a lot of startups do cheap and cheerful. They just go online, download a, a probably a similar agreement from the internet and just use that. Well, what is your take on that? I think that when you're on a budget, it's, there, there are lots of really great resources um, that you, you can use for something like that. The one thing just to be careful about is that downloading just any document and using it could cause you know potential issues down the road. So one of the things I would be careful of is making sure that what you're taking, if it's a service agreement or you know a purchase order form or something like that, or terms and conditions uh, or terms of service, you know 
that you want to use is actually read it and see if it makes sense. More importantly, read it and see if it's actually you know Canadian, for example, if you're a Canadian company, because uh, the the number of times I've seen websites, uh, you know, forms of agreements have been sent over to me um, from, say, a Canadian company. And it, it's very clear that, you know, the agreement says, oh, this is governed by the laws of California, but you're a Canadian company. You have no business in California. Why does it even say that? Um, you know, it kind of tells you that they just pulled out a form and just started using it without thinking about it. And there's some potential, you know, issues if you continue to do that. So nothing wrong with doing it because if you're on a budget and you just need something to start with, you know, I'd take the business practical approach and say, do I really need to spend money on this right now to get someone to make my form perfect? Or should I use what I have found and start to build traction and build up my company first and then maybe try to then, uh, once I've gotten some revenues, go back and make sure that I've covered off that potential issue and you know, deal with it in the future. Uh, is there a website you can go to and like download those forms and make sure that they're correct? Any tech advice out there or tech company that does those? <laughs> For forms, it, it's kind of hard. So like there are various websites out, out there like Law Depot and you know, UpCouncil where you can find sample agreements or even sample clauses of agreements that you might be able to use. The problem is, is that every agreement on there would be hopefully anyway, uh, tailored to that particular business. There are definitely forms out there, and even the forms that, say, some of the law firms will uh, will put out there that you might be able to download. Like Mars District has some sample form documents that I think one or two of the law firms are generously donated to them to use as a starting point. Even they've got disclaimers saying, this is just a form, you know, we don't advise you use this without legal advice, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there isn't really a good place for you to pull any form and say, hey, this is going to work for me perfectly. Because I don't think you're ever going to find an agreement like that. Totally makes sense. Now, I guess to continue the conversation about the industry and the globalization of business, are there any things that you would recommend for businesses that are definitely going to be global? Either they're shipping their product across to different countries, either they're providing services to multiple jurisdictions. Are there any tips there? Try to understand where your market is. So, if you are by nature global, and you know, having done a lot of work with uh, blockchain companies and being very interested in blockchain crypto myself, I understand the technology is global in nature, but laws are jurisdictional. So, you know, every country has its own set of laws. So, just being cognizant that um, and thoughtful about, hey, if I'm providing services globally and I'm getting you know users and clients globally, what, what does that mean? I think it's probably impractical when particularly when you're a startup to get legal advice from every jurisdiction that you might have a customer in at the same time you know maybe what you do is you start looking at okay if most of my customers are canadian or if most of my customers are from the us then i should get some advice on what do i need to worry about that's different from you know where my home base is so if i'm canadian and I'm selling into the U.S., what do I need to do for those purposes, uh, for services? Like, are there tax issues? Are there issues, particularly with, say, blockchain crypto? Are there issues with what I want to do in the U.S. that might be different from what I want to do in Canada? And yes, there are other countries that maybe I've got a few customers or clients that are coming from, but I'm not going to spend the money to kind of look into that with a lawyer. Now, you can always go online, too, and try to find some resources on you know, how, say, if you're selling a service into another country, like, say, the Caymans or uh, into the UK, how you might be affected by that. You just sort of have to be sort of careful about that and just sort of think through, I think, from a practical perspective, do I need to get the advice on that now? 
or is it on my list of things to do as once my business is more successful and I can deal with those risks at that point in time? The way I think of things is that everything that needs to be done should be done on a, on a risk-adjusted approach. So do you want to get everything done 100% perfect with no legal liability whatsoever? That'd be ideal, but you may not be able to move quickly enough as a result and your business may fail if you don't move quicker and you know take on some risk. Now, I guess just to confirm, so if I have a company in Toronto, Canada, that means that I am governed by the laws of Canada, Ontario, Toronto. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, Canadian federal law and Ontario law. <laughs> okay, but even if my company is global and I provide services or products internationally, for example, if I have an Amazon store and my company is registered in Toronto, Canada, but I ship across the world, it doesn't matter. I'm still bound by the federal and provincial laws where I'm based. So if you're operating your business in, in Toronto and in Ontario, then yes, you are definitely bound by the laws in Ontario and the federal laws in Canada. Now, depending on where you sell to and what the laws are in that particular country, so broadly speaking, uh, you might be subject to those laws as well. So a lot of countries will have, uh, you know, say, consumer protection type laws that they say doesn't matter where you are. If you are selling into the country and you're dealing with a customer who happens to be in my country, you're subject to those laws as well. The reason I'm asking is because, you know, starting your own online side hustles and Amazon stores and Etsy stores, it's been so prevalent for a lot of people. And it's, you know, it's called the millennial side hustles now, nowadays. But is it really that easy to escape all liability when you start something like that? And you were telling me right now that potentially not, not really. Well, it also depends on the business though, right? Because if your, your side hustle is um, you know, selling products to someone in another country, and you, you see this even on you know, Amazon stores and all that, right? Like, or, or eBay, if there's a complaint, there's a process to kind of deal with it anyway, right? And the odds of someone, you know, say if they didn't get their product, then trying to sue you, you know, halfway across the world for $12 is sort of unlikely. So practically speaking, you know, you, you probably don't need to worry too much about that. Also, depending on the store front or what you're using to actually sell, the, cost, the consumer may actually be agreeing, say, you know, with eBay that, hey, I'm subjecting myself to eBay's terms. And my only recourse if I'm unhappy with the purchase is through eBay's, you know, sort of negotiation and settlement process, for example. There, there are a lot of um, sort of nuances around that. And again, the way I kind of look at it is, look, if you're selling or product to people and it's not on a large scale, you know, chances are you're going to deal with the complaints on your own and settle it without any major issues anyway. You know, my advice to most clients and for most of these situations, even on the larger scale, is that you probably don't want to be spending a lot of legal resources and frankly money on disputes that will take years to resolve versus just trying to negotiate and, and deal with uh, most of these situations. You know, the, the other consideration on that is just the business aspect, which is if you start going down the road of legal entanglements with your customers, they're not going to be your customer anymore. Yeah, that actually, well said. That is, that is probably the case. They're not going to be your customers anymore. I guess the interesting part would be, and that comes from you know the statistic that I read recently about COVID and relationships and how a lot of people are now getting divorced because obviously COVID shown that you know you can't really spend twenty four seven three months four months in the same proximity as your partner, and so now for a lot of entrepreneurs who 
building companies, uh, you know, started from nothing, built something great, and now going through that process. Uh, what's the best way to protect yourself going forward when you're in a relationship with someone? Pretty good question. Yeah. The unfortunate reality is you're right. Like, you know, COVID's really forced everyone to stay closer together than perhaps what is normal. And, you know, sometimes those small irritations become bigger ones and, you know, the relationship kind of falls apart as a result of that. You know, kind of getting to how do you how do you protect yourself from you know, a potential breakdown of a personal relationship as an entrepreneur, that's actually a, a tough one because it depends on the relationship. So if you're a common law or if you're you know, married, for example, then and, and you start the business then, you know, while you were in that sort of long-term relationship, chances are that would become, you know, sort of um, family property and be kind of entangled in the untanglement of that relationship. So what the business can do to protect against those situations, which is what I kind of see a little bit more often, is in you know something like the shareholders agreement for the corporation, for example. If there is a marital breakdown, you know some sort of issue with a founder, um, the corporation or its other shareholders uh, may actually then have the right to buy uh, the shares back from that shareholder, really to kind of protect the business. Because you know in a situation like that, if the shares end up with the spouse or the ex-spouse, the business now has a new investor or partner that no one else expected. And, you know, perhaps do not want. So having a protective clause like that, where you can essentially take out uh, a founder that's going through some of those issues um, before it damages the entire business makes a lot of sense. I am pretty sure a lot of people would like to hear the potential things that they can do to protect themselves, because I think, unfortunately, it is what it is. We live in 2020 and things happen and it's always good to have everything figured out and all the ducks in a row. I guess to change a little bit the questions, considering that you are the business owner yourself because you, you have your own law firm, I guess for you, how has been COVID? How do you deal with obviously the pressures of this new reality? And uh, what are your recommendations to the entrepreneurs similar to you who are starting maybe a service-based professional, not careers, but I guess their own entrepreneurial journeys, what would be your recommendation tips for them? So, you know, I had the, uh, the foresight of starting my firm at the beginning of January. So, you know, three, less than three months in and uh, suddenly COVID hit for a very personal relationship type business, right? You know, the lawyers that you work with on a long-term basis, you have to kind of build up a relationship. You have to sort of trust them. And frankly, I, I want to also trust my clients and understand their business and be involved in you know, help them really grow beyond just pure, hey, I can help with services. So being locked in, you know, in my house for the last, was it now, uh, five months and uh, not being able to do what I used to do, which was meet people in person for coffee or for lunch or, you know, just have, you know, real in-person conversations and really kind of get to know each other before, um, you know, starting down, you know, the, the path of working together. That definitely threw me for a loop. It was a bit, um, it was something that I had to figure out, how, how do I deal with this? You know, here I am trying to build a practice and I can't do the traditional uh, business development that I would normally have done in the past. A lot of entrepreneurs have been going through the, the exact same question. So what, what I did, and I think a lot of other people have done is, um, you know, like to your point, you, you go digital and you adapt. So I originally wasn't sure if I really needed, um, you know, a website and then, suddenly it was like, well, you know, my LinkedIn profile isn't good enough. Like I really want something out there that can at least act as almost like a CV for the business, right? Something that um, anyone can kind of go to get a quick sense of um, who I am, what I've done, 
and what my interests are and, you know, how I work with people. Um, so they can pre-vet me. Maybe I'm not the right person for them or maybe I am. They can talk to I work with some really great friends who were very fortunate uh, that they helped me, you know, do that. So a hyphen company, so Rich and Nat, they're, they, you know, help me develop my website, my, my logo, my branding, um, and really help me focus on the client's health work. And so that really helped, um, you know, having conversations with them about, hey, you, you can do more than just meet people in person, right? How do you talk more about or get your name out there when it comes to, you know, the things that you do or, or the industries that you work in? So, um, you know, starting to, um, you know, do more of that sort of social media type posts and commentary, being involved in podcasts like yours, where I get to talk about, you know, some of my experiences and, you know, what I like to think of as, um, you know, that journey and being part of letting people know that, you know, this is, yes, a journey and we, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to do things that are perhaps going to set us back, but every single one of our successes, you know, we can all kind of cheer for each other. So, you know, just, just taking advantage really of sort of the digital aspect of our reality now too. So, you know, doing Zoom calls all the time and I, I, I love doing that and having the video on, right, which seemed very strange four or five months ago, but now is the norm for, I think, a lot of people. The other thing that I was very fortunate with is um, just, you know, my, my network of friends and colleagues who, when I told them, hey, I'm starting my own firm, here's what I'm focusing on, the number of people who, you know, would call me or message me and say, hey, I'm glad to hear you're doing that, let's catch up, I might, you know, maybe we can work together, or I might know people that you should talk to. Just having those types of um, conversations and referrals and um, made me realize that, I've been very fortunate to um, have such a great network and that, um, you know, I can leverage um, those relationships and they'll help me as much as I, I want to help them. And I think if all the entrepreneurs out there sort of have that mindset, that mindset of giving, then you're going to receive just as much, if not more in return. I love it. I love how you said that, you know, you reached out to a bunch of people as soon as this whole isolation started and really took everything into your own hands. And I truly believe that, you know, a lot of people will be out there helping you if you just ask. Many of the times, I mean, everybody wants to be someone else's hero, right? And I think you've proven that, which is awesome. Now, I guess in terms of the Zoom calls, as you mentioned, you're doing a lot of them. You're probably doing a lot of phone calls, obviously not meeting as much. Are there any tips or tricks that you figured out of how to be persuasive, I guess, over the screen? One of those qualities we discussed with Andrew D'Souza last week on the podcast, he mentioned that one of the most important skills that will be prevalent and uh, important going forward is the Zoom leadership. So have you been able to really tap into the Zoom leadership skill? You know, I think Zoom definitely has picked up in terms of, you know, usage. The video calls are, are interesting, but there's, a, there's definitely some shortfalls. I'm sure a lot of people have talked about that as well, which is what I find for with Zoom and other similar calls is that it, it works best with smaller groups. Or it, my, my ideal really is sort of individual calls. There's articles about what they call sort of Zoom fatigue, right? When you've got too many people in, in the video screen and, and you sort of naturally try to focus on multiple people at once, you just sort of end up getting more tired quickly as a result of that. So I find that when it comes to the calls themselves, um, having that sort of real authentic one-on-one -on -one conversation or one-on-two if it's more than you know, one person or one-on-three it's you know as long as the group is small you can actually have those real conversations i, I find that once it, the group gets a little too large the one of the limitations around zoom too is that 
you know, I think everyone's experienced this where someone starts to talk and someone else is talking and then they get cut off and then everyone stops talking, you know, because they, they're, they don't want to interrupt the other person. You've got this awkward silence. So that doesn't happen in real life, right? You can have that sort of flowing conversation with multiple people because it's in real time and there's always going to be a bit of a delay on a Zoom call. So having smaller groups when it comes to actually doing these calls and, and you know, sort of setting them up, I try to make it as painless as possible. So I've been using, you know, a number of tools to make, say, setting up the call itself as painless as possible. You know, um, if I want to set up a call with somebody, I can actually send them my calendar and say, hey, here are the slots I'm free. Click on any of the ones in the email. It will immediately put it into our calendars and with as well the dialing details. And so using something like that makes it so much easier than kind of going back and forth when it comes to setting things up, setting up meeting times, which is, you know, irritating aspect of, um, you know, for a lot of people for kind of completely doing these meetings to begin with. I also tend to go into meetings with sort of a general sense, I, I wouldn't say a, a full specific agenda on things, but at least, you know, be able to kind of say, hey, this is what we were sort of generally thinking about talking for this call. So if it's an introduction meeting, you know, knowing that we're going to introduce each other, maybe talk a little bit about our respective businesses, and then talk about opportunities, collaborate, and then follow up on uh, maybe future meetings, future emails, things we can send each other. So just kind of taking charge around making the call as uh, constructive as possible. But ultimately, like I said, for my business, it's very much a personal relationship that you have to build with uh, with clients. And it's about being as authentic as possible. So I, I try to you know, really listen, try to really understand and learn more about um, a person's business because I genuinely actually care. I, I actually want to know more about the business. I don't think about, hey, what can I do from a legal perspective to make money off of them? Of course, that's what I, I do for my business. But what else can I do in terms of helping the business grow? How do I, are there relationships that I have that could be um, good potential customers for them, good potential business partners, are there particular synergies? Maybe they, there's uh, you know an investor or a fund I know that is looking to invest in a company exactly like me. So if those are opportunities that I can you know, leverage and you know make those connections, then that's what I want to do as well. And I want to help uh, ultimately you know the entrepreneur um, go through the entire process of building a successful company. I love it. You're a lawyer with a soul. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that soul. Before, but that's great. <laughs> no, no, I, I love it. So then, I guess for all the listeners who either want to know more about the legal aspect of things, how to grow their business, maybe just get educated about things in general, are there any books, resources, tools that you recommend? either that helped you with your business and setting up your business or that could help people in the legal aspect of things? Uh, yeah. So I guess on the legal side of things, the firms I worked with, as well as the other firms, um, you know, they all put out some really, actually some pretty good material when it comes to new updates and things. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have seen you know, the up updates on, say, the Canadian, uh, you know, wage subsidies and, uh, you know, the, the landlord-tenant subsidies and things like that. My first kind of go-to for a quick summary of um, what's what's changed is, um, you know, look for some of those documents and um, information out there if that's something that in particular you're looking for. And, and that's sort of how I also try to keep myself as up-to-date as possible. I love reading. The, the summary update kind of gets you, you know, that quick sort of, you know, Coles Notes version. And then if you want more detail, you can kind of go into, say, the particular, uh, you know, say, new law or legislation and, and kind of think about that. When it comes to sort of the business resources, there's always some great, um, you know, podcasts, newsletters, maybe some websites um, to look at. 
Um, so podcasts, you know, of course, Savvy Millennial, I've, I've been listening to. I also like listening to, you know, sort of more business-oriented um, podcasts. Um, so Business Wars has been something that, um, you know, one of my friends got me into. Just love, you know, hearing about sort of the, the bigger companies and, and how they've grown and then sort of ended up becoming competitors and how they sort of fought against each other and sort of an interesting perspective on that. The other one is uh, Science of Success, which is, uh, is an interesting podcast where the, uh, the host brings on people that talk really about, you know, the scientific aspects of being a successful person. And that's a very, very broad thing. But as a person with a science background as well, uh, I love listening to how the science can help inform, you know, the business decisions. For websites, I, like I said, I'm sort of a crypto blockchain person. So of course, I, I look at, you know, Coindesk and Cointelegraph. But generally speaking, I, you know, for sort of general update a day, sort of business updates and things like that, really, I've got some sort of Google alerts set up for um, particular companies and things. And so I'll re- end up reading, say, Forbes articles and others that are of interest as they, as they come up. I like it. And I love how you listen to Seven Millennial Podcast. Thank you very much. In terms of you going forward with uh, the 2020 and the crypto space, considering that you know what's going on in that industry, what would be your recommendation? Is it uh, invest? Is it stay? Is it don't touch it? <laughs> that, I think that's a million dollar question that everyone wants an answer to. Or a billion um, dollar question. A billion dollar, depending on who you're talking about, right? I've been sort of immersed in it for the last uh, few years. And I would say that the industry continues to grow from a tech perspective as well as from a use case perspective. And what we're seeing this year in particular is that a lot of the regulations in, say, the U.S. and perhaps in Canada, they're starting to catch up a little bit. You know, Asia has been far ahead in terms of um, being more permissive and open to crypto and blockchain. The EU and the U.K. have been also fairly good at that. You know, as an example, just was it a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, in the U.S., the banks being allowed to custody crypto, generally speaking. I mean, that's that's sort of open doors. And that's, uh, you know, potentially one of the reasons why Bitcoin, um, you know, spiked in terms of price in the last couple of weeks, a uh, couple of days. I think there's still a lot to grow there. And there's still a lot of um, interesting use cases that come out of it. For 2020, in the crypto blockchain space, DeFi or decentralized finance is what everyone is talking about. So, you know, this includes things like um, crypto lending, using crypto as collateral for traditional lending, and having, quote unquote, you know, crypto, um, you know, savings accounts as a result of this lending activity, all of it being decentralized, all of it being, um, you know, on the blockchain where none of the major, say, banks are involved in, in, you know, sort of running the particular networks and algorithms. I think that's kind of interesting because it's, it's showing the lending space, which was traditionally more of a bank finance space is now bleeding into um, you know, the blockchain crypto space where the philosophy continues to be you know, decentralization as opposed to centralization, right? There is no one, one person or one entity um, you know, holding all the keys, then that's a better model is, is sort of the general view on, on blockchain crypto. So seeing that kind of growing is is interesting. And uh, I think we're going to see some, you know, in the long run, I'd say we're going to see more and more adoption. Um, over time, as more and more people understand and get interested in crypto and blockchain, I actually think that the pandemic probably pushed a lot of people into learning more about uh, blockchain and crypto. They definitely, you know, increased the number of people interested in, you know, stock trading uh, in, in particular. So, um, I think it's probably natural for uh, for people to start looking at crypto a little bit more too. It was crazy. Uh, so many people in the U.S. and I guess in Canada opened the direct investment accounts, and obviously were able to 
gamble, so to speak, in the market. So we'll see what happens if hopefully there won't be a second wave. But if there's a second wave, we'll see. Who knows? Now, I guess to uh, the fire round, every guest that comes on the show, we ask the following three questions. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. So a millennial is? Is savvy. <laughs> oh. What I do mean is, is um, you know, the, really the, the sense of being practical in, in terms of knowledge and ability. What, what's awesome about millennials is that we're living in a day and age where we don't need to remember every piece of information in our head anymore, right? The information is out there on the internet, on the web. And so what our sort of super skill is, is the ability to pull that information almost instantaneously, absorb it, analyze it, and use it. I think that is the skill that, um, that, that we are bringing to the table. I like it. This is so good. Now, a millennial should be? Resilient. Particularly, you know, given that we're in the pandemic right now. But I think that millennials need to be resilient because you're always going to get knocked down, right? You're going to have successes, you're going to have failures. But the failures should not, you know, be the end of your journey. What you should do is you should take those knockdowns, learn from them, and come back even stronger. So, so true. And then a millennial is not. Not willing to settle. I know there's you know, some stereotypes around millennials being lazy, just looking out for themselves. What I find is that if you look at all the new companies that are being built out there, all the innovations that are ha- happening out there, and frankly, um, where millennials and the younger generation of um, you know, citizens are, are putting their money, it's all about looking forward, right? This is why the tech stops are booming. This is why you're getting more and more entrepreneurs. Millennials are not willing to just sit back and take your nine to five day job. They want to go out there and uh, uh, you know, make a difference. I love it. Be a freelancer and work 12 to 12 and make the same amount of money. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> but, but have an impact, right? Have yes. An impact. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Now, for people who are listening, where do they find you? Where do they connect with you? Tell us your website, everything. You can find me on LinkedIn and, uh, and also my website uh, for my firm. So it's iteratevelaw.com. You can definitely reach me on, on either of those. We are very grateful that you spent so much time today with us and taught us something new and hopefully very, very valuable for a lot of entrepreneurs. And I'm sure people are going to start reaching out to you for all the legal advice they can get. Well, thanks, Maria. And I really appreciate you having me on this. And uh, uh, let's do this again soon. Thank you. Absolutely, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. And you're always invited again. Thanks. Take care. Take care.